we have before us the opportunity to forge for ourselves and for future generations a new world order. This is Multipolarity, charting the rise of the new multipolar world order. Coming up this week... As the eighth round of Tomahawk cruise missiles hit the Houthis in 10 days, a senior White House official caused guffaws when he proclaimed the attacks aren't working, but that we should keep on doing them anyway. That senior official's name? Joseph P. Biden. So, if the president himself can't come to a logical line on what's going on, what hope is there for his underlings? We'll have the latest from the Red Sea car crash. In Britain, the new defence minister, Grant Shapps, is ramping up the rhetoric, saying that the country is moving from a post-war to a pre-war world. It poses an important question. What exactly will Britain's 72,000 soldiers be doing in a global war against, say, Russia's 800,000? Selling hot dogs? Is it wise that NATO's key figures all follow the old maxim, walk loudly and carry a small stick? Finally, Javier Malay is running into issues with reality. He inherited 160% inflation, but thanks to months of painful austerity, inflation is now at a more manageable 200%. Like Salvador Allende before him, another radical South American government seems like it's about to be broken apart on the wheel of hyperinflation. Is this the teething troubles of a newborn economic tiger, or has the doom loop begun on libertarianism's last stand? But first... Poseidon with the enemy. Yeah, on Monday, British and US, well that should probably be US, with a few British forces, struck Houthi targets in Yemen yet again. It was the eighth set of attacks in the last 10 days, and this time they struck eight sites. Apparently, the forces used were fighter jets of the USS Eisenhower, one of the American aircraft carriers, as well as submarine-launched missiles, which I assume to be Tomahawk missiles. As I said, this is the eighth time in just 10 days that this has happened, It comes in the wake of quite an embarrassing clip in which US President Joe Biden was asked if the attacks were working, and he said, no, they're not working, but we're going to continue doing them anyway. I think that's almost an exact quote. It gets back to an issue that we discussed, Philip Pilkington, in a premium episode fairly recently, a week and a half ago now, in which we questioned whether these could indeed work. And here we are, multiple rounds of air attacks later, and the Red Sea is still closed. The Suez Canal is seriously impaired for seaborne traffic, and one assumes the economic damage is starting to mount. And that's really the key question here. The longer this process goes on, the more the economic damage is going to build up because it costs significantly more, as we discussed to go around the Horn of Africa, not just because of the extra fuel, but also because of the way the shipping market works. Most ships are on uh, long-term contracts, and so if you know they could do eight trips between Singapore and Rotterdam through the Suez Canal, and suddenly they can only do five trips over a year around the Horn of Africa between the same two ports, That means that companies have to go on the short-term 
tanker market, and that's simply not set up for a sudden surge like this. So prices spike. Um, so really, there's a confluence of factors that start to dramatically increase the pricing of shipping, even if only for a short period of time. And obviously, the longer this goes on, the more this is going to affect the cost of international trade. Don't forget that 12% of maritime trade goes through the Suez Canal. Also, don't forget that the Panama Canal is also currently not working at full capacity because of a water shortage. The Panama Canal uses a series of locks, essentially, to raise ships up and then lower them back down again. And because there's a shortage of water from rivers that ultimately provide water for these locks, they can't push as many ships through. As I say, the longer the Red Sea is shut and the longer this goes on, the more chances there are that it the more chance there is that it's going to give inflation, which has only just started to subside to manageable levels, greater impetus, which is going to increase pressure on central banks to raise interest rates at a time when everybody had assumed that they were going to fall. And it certainly seems at the moment that the end is not in sight. As I say, we're now on our uh, eighth round of attacks in just 10 days. Uh, I believe this time they hit eight targets. The Pentagon said that they had been successful, but I guess what that means is that all of the all of the munitions, I assume to be paveway bombs, guided bombs, and Tomahawk cruise missiles, hit their targets. But does that mean they've been successful? Does that mean they've actually destroyed anything? Does that mean they've actually degraded Houthi capacity? And if they have degraded Houthi capacity, is it anywhere near degraded to the point where they don't really pose a threat to Red Sea shipping? The answer to that is clearly no, because both the Pentagon and the UK Ministry of Defense have said that this is now going to be an ongoing military operation, which they've now called Operation Poseidon Archer, which is almost certainly something that originates in the Pentagon rather than the UK Admiralty. <laughs> but anyway, they, they've essentially admitted this is now going to be a very long-term, well, not very long-term, but this is going to be an ongoing mission, which indicates that there is no end in sight. They've essentially closed the Red Sea to shipping now because it's a war zone, uh, although I believe Russian and Chinese ships are still getting through. But apart from that, it is not looking good for the shipping industry. Yeah, it kind of feels like, um, well, first of all, we're getting dragged into a quagmire. And second of all, it is not going to work very well. I mean, just echoing what you said about Joe Biden effectively admitting that it wasn't working. The Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, was asked today by Jeremy Quinn, who's the new elected chairman of the Defence Committee, whether he thought that the campaign would be a prolonged campaign. And Sunak responded by saying there was no decision as of yet. So they don't know. And and this really feels like where we are. I mean, if like if they're planning something about this and they're talking to the military, and well, it's, it's obviously not Britain that's planning this, it's America that's planning this, but whoever's planning it, they're talking to the military and they go, well, can we do a few strikes? and then knock them out, and we're good to go, and we let the ships back in. And they go either yes or no. And if they say no, then they should say, okay, well, then it's a prolonged action, right? And it'll take a couple of months to root these guys out. And then they go, yeah, it'll take a couple of months. 
And then you make a decision on that. You, you say it is going to be a prolonged thing because it'll take a while to get rid of them, or it's not going to be a prolonged thing because we're pretty confident they'll be gotten rid of quickly. So what, what the communications are telling us, or at least what they're suggesting, is that there's no plan. This is a completely weird intervention in the world. I mean, um, I think I've said before that that whatever you think of the Iraq invasion, and I'm not a huge fan, I think it was a disaster, there was a pretty clear, like, from here to there end goal. Like, the military presumably said it'll take us around this amount of time to uh, clear out the Iraqi army, and they had a pretty decent sense of the capabilities of Saddam Hussein's army, and they said, okay, well, this is this is how it's going to work, and we're going to strike here, here, and here, and the military bases, and et cetera, right? And okay, they didn't really plan out very well what was going to happen after the war, um, although they had an idea that you know they'd be welcomed out by the Iraqis and so on. And okay, they were wrong about that, but at least there was a plan. Here, there appears to be absolutely no plan whatsoever. This is completely reactive. I think it's coming from the extremely dysfunctional Biden administration. I mean, the Biden administration has become severely dysfunctional at this point, it, it appears. And they're handing down orders and Britain is tagging along for the ride. Well, one reason that Britain might be tagging along for the ride is that we've had a little bit of news come out in the past couple of days. Now, this was shortly before the strikes, which on the day of recording took place last night, I believe. But presumably these developments were taking place against the backdrop of the strikes being planned. Well, one is that we saw Britain fire off its its dragon fire, it's called dragon fire laser weapon system. And it was up in the Outer Hebrides, I believe, which is an island off Scotland. And there's a picture of it, and it looks pretty cool. It kind of looks like a giant laser pointer shooting something out of the sky. Now, we're not going to get deep into the laser weapon stuff. If anyone ever did develop a laser weapon, it would be very useful, because these things basically... They're very expensive, presumably, but they're per per fire. They're not very expensive. So, like a two, you know, firing off air defense missiles costs a ton of money because the air defense missile costs, you know, one million, two million, whatever. This is just an electrical charge. It's probably a very large electrical charge, but each each shot doesn't cost that much. So it's a perfect it's perfect economically for the sort of thing that we're seeing develop, which is drones and and cheaper missiles and so on. The issue with these laser weapons is they're constantly promised and you, you often see single shots and then they just kind of go away. And look, they're top secret. No one knows what the story is with them. But I remember at the start of the Israel-Gaza war, we saw Iron Beam is their one being being wheeled out and then suddenly it kind of just disappeared. <laughs> so these la- laser weapons, I think at very best, are are untested. But They've pulled the, the cloak off this, and the timing, I would say, is quite opportune. The other defense, the other news is that the Ministry of Defense here in Britain is now pledging to spend £405 million to upgrade the Sea Viper missile system currently being used by the Royal Navy. Well, that's kind of the opposite uh, tack to take than developing the, the laser weapons, right? Because, okay, fine, sure, these missile systems may work pretty well, but we're beginning, you know, we're beginning to get a slew of articles saying the costs don't add up on this. Each shot you fire with a, an Aegis system, which is the American version, or this Sea Viper system, costs an absolute fortune, and you're firing against very cheap targets. Um, so it's very compelling from that point of view. 
But we've been hearing about these things for years. When the when the Israelis first launched the war in Gaza, we started getting hints that their version of this, which is called Iron Beam, presumably named after Iron Dome, was about to be rolled out and solve their problem with Hamas rockets. And after a day, we didn't hear from it again. So look, the technology is top secret, presumably. But, but you know, this is very convenient timing for them to bring out this new weapon. We've heard this before. At the same time, perhaps I would say more importantly, the Ministry of Defense has announced that it will be spending £405 million to upgrade their Sea Viper missile system that they're currently using to shoot down these targets in the Red Sea. Now, the issue with this, I would say, is twofold. First of all, all the chatter and all the kind of articles that are being published in kind of higher-end publications are pointing out that these expensive air defense systems don't make a lot of sense from a cost perspective when they're shooting down cheap drones and so on. I think I saw in Politico, the American version of this was like, they're using $2 million missiles to shoot down $2,000 drones. And this was from a military analyst, and he said it just makes no sense. But they're, they're plowing this money in. MOD are saying, Ministry of Defense here in the UK are saying that they're going to plow this money in. At the same time, today, on the day of recording, the UK government is being said by the OBR, the Office of Budget Responsibility, that you know oversees the, the fiscal situation of the government. They're saying that the UK government is exposing itself to risks on its current fiscal trajectory. So to wrap all this in a bow, where I'm going with this, is that although, as both of us have said, this looks like a bit of a quagmire, it doesn't have any clear goals, and it could escalate, we can talk about that. At the same time, the Navy seemed to be having a field day, and it's giving them an excuse to ask for more money and to demonstrate their new kit. So I, I, it feels to me like a very, a very toxic series of incentives is lying up, lining up right now. Just to focus on the science fiction side of things for a second, the laser weapons have been, as you say, in development, especially or most prominently, at least in the United States, and have been in development for, yes, decades, in fact, I think. Personally, the principle behind them is good, and I think it, the principles in favor of developing laser weapons are being brilliantly demonstrated at the moment. The U.S. Navy is using it to, what is it, $2.2 million RIM-66 standard missiles to shoot down you know, a $10,000 drone. I mean, that just makes no sense at all. I mean, if your economy was 200 times bigger than the other guys, or if your industrial capacity was 200 times the other size... You would be about on even terms on that on that scale, which rather negates America's overwhelming economic and military might somewhat, doesn't it? So in that sense, I think, you know, that's a great moment to develop laser weapons. The problem is that like nuclear fusion, you know, workable laser weapons are only 10 years away and uh, they'll always be 10 years away, as far as I can tell. The U.S. is really running into numerous problems with these, but a lot of them, you know, a lot of the problems with laser weapons should be concerning about their long-term viability. So, for instance, one of the issues is that you know you need awesome power generation. I mean, the, as as you correctly say, the the actual cost per shot or cost per kill is next to zero, and you know, in theory, if you could mass produce these, the you know the cost to build them would come down. More of that later, but the cost, you know, you've actually got to generate a huge amount of energy, and that's not necessarily available even on 
you know, nuclear power to destroy it. So, you know, you, you probably need enough energy to power a kind of, you know, a medium-sized town or something like that. And, and you've got to put that all that energy into a kind of a few seconds of laser shot. It's really not so easy. You also need space for these things. You know, these, you know, these things aren't kind of small and modern frigates and destroyers and cruisers, uh, you know, already squeezed for space because of crew accommodation ammunition, ammunition, magazines, other weapon systems, sensor systems, all, all of that sort of thing. And as, as far as I understand, the, the kind of the backbone of the US Navy, the Arleigh Burke class destroyers, simply don't have space for anything like this. But the final issue is something that should really concern the US because it's something that we've discussed on multipolarity a lot in terms of the US's economic and industrial situation is that there are a lot of complaints that the U.S. simply doesn't have the industrial capacity to bring the cost of these down through mass production because the skilled labor isn't there, the industrial plant and machinery isn't there, the high-tech stuff isn't there. So, you know, great. Well done for Britain for climbing on a, you know, like on a high-tech R&D route, but having these things deployable is quite another matter. In the meantime... As you say, we are in the the Red Sea at the moment, bombarding the Houthis. As we discussed in a previous podcast, the Houthis actually have quite a shocking breadth and variety and tactically comprehensive range of anti-ship missiles. I was, you know, I was shocked when I looked at their inventory, but they have, you know, seven or eight cruise missiles, seven or eight ballistic missiles, all of different ranges and capacities many of which work on infrared, some of which even work on uh, electromagnetic targeting, like the U.S. HARM missile, the um, uh, the one that's used to attack anti-air installations because it homes in on radar emissions. So, you know, this isn't kind of low-tech stuff, but this is the point. It is, we're now in an era where missile technology has become democratized. You can actually buy a high-end missile now or a pretty decent drone for less than the cost of a family car, like a luxury car. You know, these things can be distributed all over the place. The impression I get from these nonstop missions in the Red Sea, and and, and and this is just an impression, is what's happening is the U.S.'s first day has fired unknown targets, uh, hoping that the Houthis would get the message. Of course, the Houthis did not get the message because, as we've previously discussed, attacking 20 targets with 40 missiles is like a kind of strongly worded uh, letter, as uh, you, you know. As far as these folks are concerned, they've just had the the better part of a decade being hammered by a far larger and you know and just as well equipped Saudi force as part of their civil war. So a few missiles, you know, Tomahawk cruise missiles and paveway bombs landing on targets ain't going to dissuade them. It's a message, but it's not one that's going to work. And the impression I get is that really what they're doing is the Houthis are responding by attacking more ships. Uh, U.S. satellites are picking up where these things are launched from, trying to get more information about logistics routes. And then based on that, they're making another attack. There's another wave of missiles, another wave of fighter jets. And then the Houthis respond, and there's more ISR, intelligence, reconnaissance, and surveillance. That feeds back into another targeting package, and there's a, and we're just going around on this cycle. Now, can this eventually be successful? Yeah, I guess so. Maybe. I mean, it's possible that they, you know, the Houthis are foolish in terms of where they store their 
munitions. It's possible that eventually, you know, after 50, 100 of these things, and that the Houthis just don't have the missiles or the facilities left to be able to deliver them. But I'm skeptical about whether that would happen. But even if it does, that might be a month. It might be two months when the Red Sea, instead of ships just being targeted by Houthis, the Red Sea is now closed because it's a war zone. And so, so, so meantime, the 12% of global maritime trade is now reduced to 1%, maybe 2%. I don't have the exact figures. And this is having an economic effect. As I said in previous episodes, in, in, in some ways, this is a justifiable military operation, unlike many of the others that were involved in on various levels. It is strategically justifiable because this can have a direct economic effect on our economies and you know, ultimately our security. However, sometimes every problem is not a nail that can be hit with a hammer. It may well be, as I think Steve Davis, the head of education at the IEA, said on Twitter to you, there's a difference between a problem and a, predic- a predicament. A problem can be solved. The predicament has to be coped with. After the week before the Houthi, the first strike by the US and the UK, the Houthis attacked two ships, and the week after it, they attacked four. So they they are not at capacity, and I think the Houthis will probably respond relative to the amount of attacks that are done on them. I think we're making the miscalculation, or the West is making the miscalculation that they are currently striking at capacity. I don't think that's the case. And the second thing I'd say is, if this is a game where it's the first guy to run out of weapons that loses on the British and American side, that will be to run out of missiles and so on. And on the Houthi side, that will be to have their missiles and drones struck. I think my money is probably on the US and the UK running out of their extremely expensive munitions and having to reload, rather than the Houthis with their cheap drones and relatively cheap cruise missiles. So the as we said at the start, there's no clear plan behind this. All the signaling from the politicians suggests that it's pretty clear the Navy has been warning about these problems for years. And I think they're seeing an opportunity now to get some money in the door to deal in the very long term with them. And while I have sympathy for that, we have a fiscal crisis in the US, in the UK. And also if this turns into a bit of a a bit of a mess the egg on the face that the Navy will have, I think will far outweigh the short-term capacity to effectively fundraise off this operation. Yeah, I just want to talk about that very briefly. I know we're discussing the situation in the Middle East, but you know, it really is multifaceted, so it's worth concentrating on this a little bit. My personal view, Philip, is that uh, you know, I understand what you're saying, but I suspect that you know, the dog is wagging the tail here, not the tail wagging the dog. I suspect that the guys developing the laser weapons are using it as an opportunity, you know, using these stripes as an opportunity to have some magnified PR for their new fancy system. I don't think the strikes are coming as a result of of, of needing to get funding for this laser weapon. I, I think it's the other way around. Apologies if I've got your view wrong. I just want to say, though, this, you know, we concentrate on, you know, who's going to win this? Is it going to be the Houthis or the US Navy? Or you know, who's going to quit first? Or we might say, oh, what, what effect is it going to have on the economy? What we haven't spoken about far as the strategic aspect, the, the first strategic issue is this could easily lead to 
escalation via two routes. First of all, if somehow the Iranians get involved, for instance, the US intercepts or destroys a weapons shipment from Iran to the Yemen and the Iranians feel they have to respond somehow, or pressure from the US to actually do something about the Iranian support for the Houthis, pressure from the US media political nexus, you could easily see that happening. The other point here is that America's or Washington's primary strategic concern at the moment is clearly China, the South China Sea, and Taiwan. Now, to defend Taiwan, the U.S. would almost certainly have to provide emergency, and in fact, as you know, fairly recently. I'm not sure if it's the case now, but relatively recently, Taiwan's defense plans uh, rested upon understanding that a Chinese attack was likely or coming and having enough time to get emergency weapons shipments from the U.S. to bolster their defenses. Now, the U.S. has already ran down its stocks of a lot of those by through its support of, to Ukraine, things like man pads, which are man-portable, man-portable anti-air systems, air defense systems, things like HIMARS, which U.S. Marines would most certainly use in any defense of Taiwan if they were actually on the island, range of other weapons as well. The other issue is that now they're actually running down a lot of their premier kind of naval defense weapons in the Red Sea, both their their RIM-66 uh, anti-air uh, missiles and also their Tomahawks, which are their kind of premier standoff precision munition. I mean, if this goes on for much longer, then losing Taiwan essentially becomes a fait accompli, okay? So... This is a story that's rumbling on. There are immediate economic impacts because there seems to be no end in sight. I think Joe Biden and Rishi Sunak have both essentially admitted that, and the fact that it's now being called an ongoing operation confirms it. But secondly, there are also strategic aspects, both in terms of the potential for this to lead to wider escalation in the Middle East and in terms of the U.S.'s ability to... Uh, defend its primary strategic interest, which is the status quo in the Western Pacific. World War Three, Part Two. Britain's new Defence Secretary, Grant Shapps, has made his first major speech as Defence Secretary. And what to say about it? It's all very Peter Sellers in Doctor Strangelove, if anyone's familiar with the film. Grant Shapps said that there would be further wars with China, Russia, Iran, and North Korea in the next five years. If Grant Shapps is right, I'm guessing we should all buy tinned food, because he is saying that in the next five years, we're going into full-blown World War III. Not a naval war between the Chinese and the Americans in the South China Sea that would be very dangerous, but you know, you could imagine how it wouldn't escalate, maybe, even though I think there is a very strong chance it would escalate, but you know, you could at least make the argument. The apocalyptic vision that Dr. Strangelove Grand Chaps is laying out is a world's war with at least three nuclear powers, North Korea, Russia, and China. So I mean the first thing to highlight is this is bonkers. Having a defense secretary speak like this is, I mean, I thought at first scary, and now I think increasingly, no, it's ridiculous. 
it's a ridiculous thing to say because none of that's actually happening. And we'll talk about why that is in a moment. But the the second thing to happen in the same week, just to highlight how bizarre this is, how absurd it is, the Chinese premier, Li Kuang, landed in Dublin to meet various Irish leaders, including the Irish Taoiseach that is the Prime Minister, Leo Varadkar. And they announced the quote-unquote huge potential for deeper economic and trade cooperation between the two countries. Now, not to put too fine a point on it, but Ireland and Britain are both very close allies of America, and they are both stitched in effectively to the same global security apparatus. Britain, on the one hand, are saying that we're going to be in war with China in five years, which will be apparently part of an apocalyptic world war in which, I guess, we're all going to be conscripted for. (laughs) I suppose that's the rationale here. While at the same time, the Irish Taoiseach is meeting Li Kuang and organizing business deals. Who do I think is more credible? I think probably the Irish Taoiseach is more credible here. And he, he and the rest of the Irish government sees the writing on the wall and sees that this stuff is getting increasingly hysterical. And as I said, less scary and more surreal. So that's where we are. Now, we can discuss in a little bit more detail what what the implications of what Shaps is saying, which are mind-bending in a sense. But I'll just throw one statistic out there before we discuss it a little more. Taken together, the new axis of evil that Grand Shaps has created have an army strength of both active and reserve personnel of 8.2 million troops. Again, 8.2 million. Uh, a few days after Shaps's Dr. Strangelove speech, um, he was then coming out and defending uh, that the British army would not dip below 73,000 troops because the UK army is having a severe recruitment crisis at the moment. The US army is also having a recruitment crisis and it has a total of just over a million troops. So if we went to World War III, as Grant Chaps is saying, we'd be outnumbered eight to one. That's without talking about the potential for conscription or anything else. Eight to one. So I don't even know what to make of this. It feels like the adults have left the room. It's turning into a bit of a clan show, it feels to me. I have no idea why Grand Chaps is... (laughs) No, let me rephrase that. I have no idea why the British government and successive British governments feel the need to do this. Since Suez, we've always as a nation, really latched ourselves to the United States and and tried to be the best of bestest members of the North Atlantic security apparatus that, or, or framework. Since Tony Blair in 1998, also certainly since his Chicago speech in, I think, 1999 on the eve of the Kosovo War, it's almost like we've become the, you know, the most, one of the most bellicose nations in the world it's really strange. And, and and what's even stranger about this is that it seems to be a classic case of, you know, empty vessels make the most noise because the more that we tub thump and scream about being on the front line, standing up for democracy and the rules-based order and, 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 and really pushing recalcitrant, recalcitrant nations, the more we talk about that sort of thing, the less ability we actually have to actually do anything about it. The people understand that 72, 75,000 soldiers, whatever it is, 
they, they understand that that's not much for an army. But in real terms, in terms of what we could actually put at the sharp end, how many fighting men we could put in the theatre of, of battle, Britain would really struggle, really struggle to put out two brigades. Two brigades. Not even, I, I don't think we could even put out a division. I really don't. I'm pretty sure two brigades, if we scrape together everything, a brigade has, what, three to 5,000 men? This isn't a, a significant fighting force. We still have world-class light, light infantry, um, parachute regiment, the Royal Marine Commandos. We still have world-class special forces with the SAS and the SBS and the SRS. Great stuff. Our Navy is still extremely well-trained, except if they're captaining minesweepers in dock. But again, that's small. How many crew, you know, destroyers do we have at the moment? Very few. Uh, one, two, maybe? Operational, available for operation. It, it, it's like, look, I, I, sorry, I might sound like I'm getting emotional, but it's, I, you know, I find it so frustrating as a Briton that our teeth increasingly seem completely out of proportion to our appetite. Can I be the only person in the world, Philip, who actually would like us to rearm? who would like us to spend a significant amount more on the armed forces in a dangerous world and yet be massively less bellicose? Am I the only person who would like that? It's also a question of what they're spending on. I mean, a week and a half ago or so, just after the first strikes, or it was uh, close to the time when the first strikes took place in Yemen, the Telegraph reported that the UK won't be sending any aircraft carriers to the Red Sea because of a staffing crisis. Again, I just alluded to the fact there's a m massive recruitment crisis in the British Army and in the American Army, but British is particularly bad. So these three billion pound aircraft carriers are not sailing to the Red Sea because they don't have enough staff. And we've seen since then there haven't been any British aircraft carriers in the region. So I, I think these are these are pretty cred credible claims. Philip, can I just add something even more to that? Like, even if they did have enough staff for the aircraft carriers, very pertinent questions. Could they sail to the Red Sea anyway? Like, would they have enough ready and available aircraft to provide the combat air patrol around the aircraft carrier? Would they have enough support ships, i.e. cruisers and frigates and hunter-killer submarines to provide effective protection within a carrier strike group? I'm not sure. Like, every time I've seen the... I've seen HMS Prince of Wales or HMS Queen Elizabeth II on the ocean. It, you know, it's part of a multinational strike group. So, you know, you might have like a Netherlands frigate. You might have, you know, like a, a German destroyer. I'm picking things out off the top of my head here. But, it, it, you know, it's not an all-British carrier strike group. So does that mean to send the carrier to, say, the Red Sea, we would need to find the support of other Western European nations? Is that how it works? I'm not sure, but it seems to me that these things aren't ready and available to go in the same way that, say, the USS Dwight Eisenhower is. Well, and then it goes back to the issue, because as we said in another segment of the podcast, the US has now committed £405 billion to uptooling its, its air defense missiles on the ships. Well, how is £405 million pounds spent on upgrading air defense going to solve the recruitment crisis. The priorities here seem completely mixed up. And if I were to be cynical, I'd say that solving the recruitment crisis doesn't make anyone any money. Buying new air defense systems 
does make people money. This is a serious problem. It used to be called the military industrial complex. I think a president talked about it once upon a time in the United States. But here's my concern from a broader point of view. What is with this World War III stuff? And it's, it's one country saying it, which makes it even more bizarre. But what's with it? Well, I think we have to take it in context of the fact that the Ukraine war is going very, very badly now. No one's saying it isn't. Everyone's preparing for a loss of some sort. They'll, they'll put that in more diplomatic terms, perhaps, but that's, that's what's happening. And who's scared of that? NATO. NATO's scared of that because NATO is a big bureaucracy that hires a lot of people. And if they lose the Ukraine war, because let's be frank, NATO put its whole muscle behind this in terms of sending military equipment and so on to Ukraine, fighting in a theater that NATO was designed to fight in. NATO was set up to counter the Soviet Union, probably somewhere around Ukraine, maybe Germany. So if they lose this, I think everyone in NATO fears for their job. And so they're pivoting to World War III rhetoric, and they're trying to retool the alliance, NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, which has a treaty behind it. They're trying to retool that to take on everyone from Iran in the Persian Gulf to China in the South China Sea, North Korea, and Russia. And so on the one hand, as we alluded to earlier, this can look a little silly. It's like, well, that's probably not going to work. But on the other hand, you have a big administrative apparatus with large bureaucracy that's quite well funded. And they're thinking to themselves, to justify ourselves, we need to start wagging the flag for World War III. That's a pretty scary situation, although I don't think it's going anywhere because it makes no sense, as we've discussed, just from a pure military point of view. But it is a little, it is a little weird. And I hope if any of our listeners work for the grand organization of NATO, this isn't the way to go. Figure out something else. This is a complete dead end and it's dangerous for the world. But it also makes you look silly, frankly. I don't think it's weird at all, actually. There has been since the end of the Cold War a case, as you say, of NATO being an organization looking for a purpose. But ultimately, NATO was set up as the kind of the military arm of the the Western economic, military, and to a certain degree, even social and political alliance framework during the Cold War. When the Cold War ended, the US maintained and sought to extend all of those frameworks as as far as it possibly could. And the economic trading system, the kind of social policies that are pushed internationally, we all know what they are, the kind of the military and diplomatic system, all of these things are essentially extensions of that Cold War thing, an effort to bring that Western North Atlantic alliance, I guess Japan and Australia were involved as well, but primarily a North Atlantic alliance to the whole world. What we're seeing now is that primarily Russia and China, but also other nations are starting to push back, back against that. And this is an existential threat to all of those who have had their entire careers within that system, and especially have had their entire careers within a system where the United States could enforce that, pr that preferred framework of its with impunity. Now that's breaking down. Now we're moving into a multipolar world. And this is causing 
you know, in the way that Sartre might think of it, a kind of like an existential crisis, an existential kind of psychic crisis for a lot of these folks. I, I would say, though, that a lot of what they're saying is utter, is utterly empty. It's it, 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 it's empty and path- quite pathetic, in fact, bellicosity. Why? Well, if they were serious, they would have a plan. They wouldn't just say it. They wouldn't just say we need to rearm and prepare for World War Three. Even as Neville Chamberlain was engaging in a, in a you know in a, a, a policy of appeasement for Adolf Hitler's global claims, he was rearming at a breakneck pace and 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 at an increasingly breakneck pace through 1937, 38, and 39. They still weren't ready by the time he he abandoned appeasement in in August 1939. But still, but still, he had that happening in the background. What do we do? Nothing at all. So you mentioned a recruitment crisis. Has there been any effort, any effort whatsoever, to think why why is the recruitment why is there a recruitment crisis? Why could we have young men sign on to serve king and country? you know, 30, 40, 50 years ago, but we can't now. Has anybody even thought about that? And then once we understand that, what can we do to change it? Has there been any effort whatsoever to increase British industrial capacity insofar as our ability to produce things like 150 millimeter artillery, to produce tanks, which we can no longer do? My neck of the woods in the northeast of England used to have the Armstrong factory, which was one of the greatest tank manufacturing facilities in the world. Is any talk about bringing that back? The Tyne River, when I was a little boy, I used to walk down Wall's End High Street, and I could sometimes see huge ships towering over the houses from the shipyards, places like Swan Hunter. Is there any effort to bring those back? Is there any effort to industrialize at all? Because it's not just a case of saying, hey, we need more money. You guys, you need to sign up, you know, fight for your country, fight for, you know, our liberal, progressive, rule-based order. Okay, it's not a case of that. You need an actual plan. And without a plan, this is just empty rhetoric. In fact, it's worse than nothing. It's worse than nothing because it freaks out people like China and Russia who think, oh, my God, these guys are, like, incorrigible. They're preparing for war. There's nothing we can do, maybe. But at the same time, they look at us and think, my God, they're so weak. They're doing nothing. Okay, we send all of our weapons to Ukraine. We, you know, it's it, it, it's really, really poor, and it's. It, I'm afraid it is absolutely typical of this political class. They're foolish. They're callow. They're intellectually feckless. They're far more interested in messaging than they are in actual doing. And it, you know, it might be funny if they weren't so dangerous, but when it comes to World War Three, I'm afraid they are. Vimargentina. The Argentinian situation is heating up remarkably quickly. Javier Malay, the new president there, the anarcho-capitalist, also known as Captain Anca, promised obviously that uh, that he would dollarize the economy, turn uh, Argentina from uh, using the peso, the Argentinian peso, to using the U.S. dollar thereby bringing inflation under control. I think we did an episode uh, about this before, and we basically said there weren't enough dollars. Well, lo and behold, there weren't enough dollars. So they're not doing the dollarization. Wow, okay, well, apparently there's a backup plan, right? Well, the backup plan has been to devalue the Argentinian peso by more than 50%. And the justification for this 
is that it is not at its market value, that the Argentinian state has long been propping up the value of the peso. Devaluing it will bring it into line with the correct market value of the peso. Where is Captain Uncap getting this from? Uh, he has now been surrounded by the more hardline economic advisors for the previous Macri government, not the government Malay has taken over from, but the previous one. It was a, a center-right government that wanted to try and get inflation under control. And the more hardline economic advisors have, have grabbed onto Malay's coattails, and they've decided to do what is a sort of shock therapy to the economy. Well, it's not working out so well. Argentinian inflation has risen now to 200 and 11% up from 161% only the previous month. So inflation is now 50% higher. That is a hyperinflation, folks. That's what that is. It's becoming increasingly clear that it's a hyperinflation. And when you let the hyperinflation genie out of the bottle, you don't control it. Because what happens is the inflation goes up 211% as it currently is, and then the currency has to be revalued because that's how economics works. That's how foreign exchange markets work. And then when you cut the value of the currency again, it feeds back into the inflation. And so we'll see probably in January or February another 50% or 60% or 70% or 100% increase in that inflation rate. And what you have there is a doom loop. And it ends in horrible, horrible tears. The, just to give some sense already how much dysfunction this is creating, the, the official rate, the official rate is the exchange rate that the Argentinian government quotes. This is the one that Millet removed the restrictions on. He let it, it go to the market rate, and he said that's a fake rate. The official rate has now diverged to the market rate for dollars by 50%. So what we're seeing is the doom loop kick in. And Malay and his administration are about to realize that although those uh, currency controls may have had very awful effects and they were economically inefficient and all that stuff, they were there for a reason. They were there to prevent an outbreak of hyperinflation. At the same time as this is happening, the major strikes, the major unions are, are, are undertaking, about to undertake enormous strike action because Malay is cutting their pay because he's a libertarian, so he wants, to, he wants to crack down on the unions. That is going to be awful for inflation too, but it's also going to probably lead to social unrest at this point. And just to say the last thing, we have some provisional data from the Argentine Confederation of Medium-Sized Companies. My guess is this isn't a Peronist organization. This is a bunch of small businessmen. I would imagine many of who voted for Javier Malay. Well, apparently in December, that is only a couple of weeks after Malay's wacko experiment, these companies have shrunk, shrank by 27%. And the small to medium enter enterprise industrial activity has, has declined 32%. In a month, a third of the, of the, a quarter to a third of small and medium-sized companies are just gone. They're either gone or they're operating at way below capacity. And industrial activities crashed by a third in a month. So I think pretty much Argentina is going into a really tumultuous period, probably worse than what they saw in 2000, would be my guess. Major hyperinflation, 
Social unrest probably coming on the back of that strike activity by the unions, which I would guess as people's money loses value and their companies close and a third of industrial output hits and unemployment lines grow, that those trade union strikes will grow into a protest movement, potentially riots, etc., etc. So sadly, because I like Argentina, it looks like Argentina is going to burn. And the guy in the superhero outfit who said he was going to de-dollarize the economy and then didn't de or sorry, dollarize the economy and then immediately said when he got into office, I'm not dollarizing the economy, but I have this wacko backup plan. The guy in the superhero outfit wasn't to be trusted. Shock, horror. Right. I, I mean, I think the first thing to say is that sometimes when we hear figures like, you know, inflation is 150%, we don't kind of, you know, we can't mentally see what that's like, but... You know, to put a figure on it, if your weekly groceries bill one year, you know, in January on January the twenty third, two thousand twenty four, is fifty quid a week, right? Then on January the twenty third, twenty twenty five, it'll be a hundred and twenty five pounds a week. I mean, that's a huge amount, especially for poorer people who spend a high percentage of their disposable income on things like groceries and rent. You know, it's incredibly painful indeed. So I don't think that we should underestimate just how horrible this kind of economic situation is. I mean, even without the swinging spending cuts and the, you know, grinding down on, on, on you know, wages and, 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 and basically labor power, you know, you also, you know, just the inflation alone would be tremendously painful. However, Far be it, you know, I'm sure Captain Ancap wouldn't want anybody to defend them, defend him. But let me play devil's advocate for a while with you, Philip, and maybe you can answer this, these questions. I think that Malay's defenders, or you know, or certainly some of the people I've been reading in, you know, in places like Bloomberg and 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 the, even the Critic in the UK had a really glowing, a glowing article about Malay the other day. Their argument is this: like, look, he took over horrendous economic situation the currency was grotesquely overvalued officially so much so that there was a black market of of dollar exchange taking place where you could get a couple of dollars for piles and piles of pesos at the same time inflation was out of control government spending was out of whack debt was unsustainable he had to do something to deal with this and he's acted very sharply, but it's necessary. There is going to be a lot of pain associated with this, but it's necessary. In theory, in theory, horrible as it might be to say, the fact inflation has jumped up, it, it should only be a one-off jump because it was a one-off rapid and large devaluation. Any future devaluations will be smaller than that in theory. So this shouldn't affect inflation so much. So it should be a one-off matter of inflation. Once it's gone through the pipe, the comparison base for the following year, because inflation's always done on a year-on-year -year basis, this year compared to last, it'll come down. At the same time, his spending cuts, combined with the fact that Argentinian people are just going to be plain poorer in terms of what they can buy in the shops, that's going to really squeeze down on demand and ultimately, in a free capitalist economy, that's going to have a positive effect on inflation because simply people won't be able to buy stuff. Like the demand side of things is going to go into an effective depression 
and that's going to be heavily disinflationary. So once he's gone through that, once he's liberalized markets, once he's freed up capitalism to work its magic, once he's privatized these inefficient state uh, organizations and uh, assets, you know, it's all going to allow Argentina to come out on the other side of this after a year or two years maybe of of really extreme pain. It's going to allow Argentina to come out on the other side of this a much stronger country and they will come out the other side but they had to take their medicine at some stage what do you have to say about that argument first thing i'd say is i never thought i'd see libertarians and fiscal conservatives and all these people defend a hyperinflation i mean i i wrote an, i wrote an essay there the other day we won't talk about it too much but it was the initial title and i think they expanded on it was called libertarianism's last ride because you know the ideology is already very weak after the populist waves and so on. Well, it looks like Libertarian's last ride, if I'm correct, that that is indeed what this is. Libertarian's last ride has been a bunch of Libertarians defending the debasement of a currency, which I think is poetic. They are the ones that always told us currencies have to be stable, that's why we should have gold backing, etc., etc. And here they are saying, Oh no, a 50% increase in inflation is no big deal. Okay, all right. Well, guys, what have you been telling us for the past 100 years? But anyway, irony aside and getting that little dig in, no, it doesn't it doesn't work like that. A painful adjustment is usually associated with an austerity program, like the IMF would impose on a country or like the European Union or the Eurozone imposed on Greece very famously. And what those adjustments do is they they suck purchasing power out of the economy, create unemployment, and typically create deflation, not inflation. Prices fall in those circumstances. And when prices fall, the whole idea of the austerity programs, when you strip them right back, is that wages fall. And when wages fall, the country becomes more competitive, and it settles down to a lower equilibrium. And some economists will say that's them living within their means. Big debates around that, but, you know, nominally makes sense. Look, Greece is still in the euro. It's a lot poorer than it was previous to the austerity program. But you can, in a sense, credibly point to Greece and say they got their debt under control. Their trade balance is now a lot better. And, you know, they they have the living standards that they, I mean, they deserve in a sense, deserve relative to their skill sets and so on. Okay, I may not agree with that, but it's at least an argument. When you have a hyperinflation, when inflation is going up 200% a year, and this will only rise, watch in the next months, in order to just afford bread, in order to afford your rent, in order to afford heating bills, anything, everything's going up 200%. So incomes have to go up 200% or thereabouts. Wages have to go up. There's nothing you can do about that in hyperinflation. And, And the government doesn't control it. The companies are seeing these price rises. So they're, they're, the goods that they're selling, if you're selling potatoes, the, your potato price goes up 200%. You've got 200% more pesos. And then you turn around and you pay the farmer 200% more for the potato. Like that's how hyperinflation works. Like no one starves in a hyperinflation. It just gets into this mad inflationary activity. Well, what does that do? It drives down your competitiveness, not up. With wages 200% higher, in pesos domestically, you are less competitive on the market. So what happens? Economics does its job. The currency adjusts. The currency automatically adjusts to offset the old costs. This is one of the most basic things you learn 
in international economics. It's purchasing power, parity model of currencies. And at the extreme, this always works in hyperinflation. It always works. And that's what creates the doom loop. So when the potato guy gets paid 200% more pesos just so he can buy his own potatoes, which have gone up 200%, his potatoes are no longer competitive on the international market. So the peso has to fall 200%. Literally, that's how it works. has to fall 200%. What happens when it falls? Prices rise. Import prices rise again. And you get the inflation build on itself and build on itself and build on itself. And that's a hyperinflation. And as I said, once you let the hyperinflationary genie out of the bottle, you can't put it back in. You don't fully control what happens next at all. You don't control it economically. You don't control it socially. You don't control it politically. And that is where Argentina is headed. And if I were Javier Malay sitting in the presidential palace, I would be scared. Because you, Mr. Millet, have just completely lost control over your country. And you made the decision to lose control over your country. So I think this is going to end in real tears. But we'll see. Watch those inflation numbers in the coming month. If they start going up 50, 100%, accelerating, you know you're in a real hyperinflation. En el fondo, ¿sí? estamos en una situación donde no solo somos superiores en lo productivo, no solo hemos sacado millones de personas de la pobreza, no solo es el único sistema que es justo, sino que además somos estéticamente superiores. Muchas gracias y ¡Viva la libertad, carajo!